electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the fund's investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. You're listening to The Exchange. Here's today's show. Hi, everybody. I'm Kelly Evans, and here's what's ahead this hour. Rates are popping ahead of the Fed's meeting this week, even as the chorus of voices warning about recession continues to grow. Is the Fed about to make an epic mistake, or would not hiking be the far larger error? We'll look at what markets are telling us. Plus, Chinese stocks getting crushed again today, the tech names in particular. Alibaba's down 30% in a month, gets a major downgrade by J.P. Morgan. Is this still delisting worries, or is COVID the new scare? And emerging markets have had a rough start to the year, down nearly 15% on average as the dollar and oil prices have spiked. But there are some bright spots. We'll look at who they are and why. First, though, let's get to Dom Chu with the latest market numbers. Dom? We have lost some steam, much more so than we did earlier on so far. If you look right now at the markets, it's mixed. It was solidly green earlier today, but the Dow Industrials are up 100 points right now. It doesn't seem bad, but at the highs, we were up 451 points, and at the lows, we were up roughly 29. So we're tilting more towards the lower end of the trading range so far today. It has been an outperformer all day. The S&P 500, 41.81, the last trade there, down about 22 points, half of 1%, 41.81. 12,612, down 230 points now for the NASDAQ composite, off nearly 2%. We'll continue to watch that underperformance in that trade come out. One of the key parts to watch right now is what's happening in the macro environment. If you take a look at some of those trades that we are watching very closely, take a look at things like, say, what's happening with WGI crude, $102.08. That's the reason why it's important. Remember, just in the past week or so, we were up at $130 north of that for WGI crude. And at the lows today, $99.76. We actually traded below $100 for U.S. benchmark crude prices. So keep an eye on that particular trade. Also on the interest rate side of things, watch what's happening there because we hit on the 10-year note yield, the highest since July of 2019, currently just a hair below 2.12%. And as you can see there, that trade has been fairly fairly momentous there in terms of the sell-off in bonds and the rise higher in yields. That is leading to some reverberations in the marketplace, specifically in those tech-oriented stocks, but certainly what's happening with a key sector in financials. One of the outperforming sectors so far today, look at regional banks like Regions Financial, Key Corp, Comerica, all up roughly 4 to 5% at this stage. Even the big money center banks like Bank of America and J.P. Morgan Chase up 1.5% to 3% as well. Financials in focus, given that big rate decision coming up on Wednesday from the Fed. And then one last place to watch because there are so many moving parts. Kelly, you mentioned it, you alluded to it, the Chinese internet names. Pinduoduo, NetEase, JD.com, and Baidu are each among the worst performing stocks in the NASDAQ 100 today. The mega cap names there down 15%, 8, 9%, 8% for those names. And the Crane Shares CSI China Internet ETF is down 10% in this trade. And I can't even say it because it's been a downtrend the entire time. Everything you think, every time you think there's a bounce, Kelly, it just tends to go even lower after that. Absolutely. So one step forward, two steps back, one step forward, two steps back. Keep an eye on that Chinese internet trend. An all-time low for the K-Web, and it listed in 2013. Dom, right. thank you very you much. Got it. 
All right, as Dom just mentioned, yields are on the rise today, and they've continued to rise throughout the session pretty much. The 10-year just below 212, which I think is the session high right now. The 30-year nearing 2.5%, the 5-year around 2.06%. As you can see there, look at those green numbers. That's the 2-year on top. The yield curve is pretty flat right now. Some say it's signaling the Fed is about to make a major tightening mistake. My next guest warned that markets would sell off when the Fed began tapering late last year. So where does he see U.S. Uh, stocks going now as rate hikes are about to kick off? Joining me is Barry Knapp. He's Ironside's macroeconomics managing partner and director of research. Barry, it's good to see you again. Um, QE's over officially. As of this weekend, rate hikes are about to begin. Where does that leave stocks? Well, we had um, <clears throat> what? What I expected, as you as you just referenced, which was the typical 10 to 12 percent correction when the Fed does make their big first significant policy pivot. So for me, we've had an appropriate adjustment to the Fed starting to normalize policy. Um, so for I think in part, you know, we talked about a couple of the different channels in the way uh, tightening monetary policy or loose policy, for that matter, affects the markets. There's expectations of the rate path, well, that's been pretty well, uh, you know, we've made a pretty significant adjustment there. Obviously, we've had a fantastic move higher in two-year note yields, for example. There's also real rates. Now, we had a big move uh, tighter in real rates. The 10-year part of the curve moved from 110, negative 110 basis points all the way to 40 and change, but it's backed up on the, on the Russian invasion. So there's some vulnerability to a snap back there. But there, for me, the real issue is the volatility channel. Sure. And that, that volatility channel comes because the Fed buys 100 percent of the supply of mortgage-backed securities, re, was reinvesting and still reinvesting 50 to 60 billion dollars a month. When that risk gets transferred back to the sell side, that is going to cause a big move in, in the yes. value at risk measure and vol in general. But we had the move index, which is short-term vol, have a fantastic spike higher, um, went to 1.8 standard deviations above its long-term mean. For, so for all, put all those things together, I think we're in a position to rally out of Wednesday's meeting because we've had this appropriate adjustment, because we've had a big move in expectations around rate policy, and we've even moved the least appreciated, but for me, biggest risk, which is you know, is interest rate vol and how that permeates out across other asset classes. Got it. So again, you think that we could actually see maybe a little bit here of sell the news by the fact when the Fed actually hikes on Wednesday. Let me zoom out, though, and ask you a bigger question that I'm hearing and people are starting to ask all the time right now, Barry, because they're worried about stagflation. Can you and should you own U.S. equities right now? What about how equities performed in the 1970s or as we've seen during, you know, whatever past period of inflation you want to pick? What about stagflation if we're heading right. that direction instead? What about the yield curve? What, I mean, can you own U.S. equities for the next couple of years here and actually do pretty well? Oh, I absolutely think you can. But there is some, you know, some caveats to what I'm going to say. There always is, right? But <clears throat> I'm not an economist, but a strategist. Nonetheless, if you look at the period of the 60s when we went from a disinflationary regime like we had in the 2010s, the 50s and the 10s are very similar from a monetary policy, uh, regular bank regulatory policy perspective. And we got into that reflationary regime in the 60s. We had stronger nominal growth. We had faster earnings growth. Earnings growth picked up from 8 or 9% in the 50s, which is what we had in the 10s, to 15% in the 60s. The, only, the risk is that we jump straight to the 70s and we get into a 
you know, a real rapid inflation environment. So the, the key really is that inflation settles down to something around or less than 4%. I actually think the corporate sector is fine in that environment. The bond market's not, but yeah. the corporate sector could be. So I don't think stagflation is a big issue. I know people have been focused on uh, issues like falling consumer confidence. For me, those are much better political indicators than they are um, economic indicators. In fact, this morning, the New York Fed survey came out and said spending plans hit their highest level ever since they wow. started that survey back in 2013. So I'm not really worried about the consumer's ability to absorb higher gasoline prices. I think they'll be fine. I think the sec there's two second order effects from the Russian invasion. One is higher inflation, to be sure, and that's a problem. Just discuss that. But it's also going to mean higher capital investment. The whole deglobalization de theme is becoming really pervasive. That's a net positive for U.S. equities. I think it'll take places like Europe longer <laughs> to get around to that. Okay. Watch Germany. They'll be the likely first mover away from being reliant on exports. But, you know, for places like China, which I've been hugely bearish on, it's going to be a long time for them to be able to make any sort of adjustment. So in that environment, a reflationary regime, a deglobalization regime, I think you do want to be in U.S. equities, but you want to be in the cyclical sectors, not tech, um, and surely not the defensive sectors like Staples either. All right. Well, maybe some reassuring words for those. You know, we're hearing more and more about the risks here for so many different asset classes. Barry Knapp sticking with U.S. equities uh, tactically, like you mentioned. Thanks for your time. We appreciate it. It's great to see you today. Thanks, Gil. Barry Knapp from Ironside's Macroeconomics. Now, the market is bracing for the Fed's first post-pandemic rate hike this week. My next guest says she expects a central bank to remain in inflation-fighting mode despite the Ukraine war, China's COVID shutdowns, and slumping consumer sentiment here in the U.S. Joining me now is Anita Markowska. She's chief financial economist at Jefferies. And Anita, what do you say to those who point to the yield curve among all the other factors I mentioned and, and say, you know, this Fed is going to tighten us into a recession? Well, the Fed hasn't even, you know, hiked a single time yet. So at this point, I think there's no debate that they need to get get started. Um, I think the signaling will be very open ended. I, I don't necessarily think that they're going to commit themselves to a series of hikes. But I think uh, the rhetoric the rhetoric is going to be such that inflation risks are just greater right now than growth risks. Um, and I think it's reasonable to expect, you know, 25 BIP increment moves at pretty much every meeting this year, but the risks are skewed toward faster rather than slower. Um, because again, I just think that inflation expectations here are really at risk of de-anchoring and that has to be the number one priority at the Fed. What about China? I mean, you see what's going on there. If they can't control the spread of Omicron and they stick with zero COVID, they're going to have to shut down bigger swaths of the economy. Shenzhen already is a major global manufacturing hub. Shouldn't we expect to see a ripple impact on demand and supply? That's right. But again, I think, you know, it's a question of which one of those risks is, is sort of a bigger issue that the Fed needs to address right now. Um, and the fact is that, you know, we are kind of looking at a backdrop where you have supply shock on top of supply shock on top of supply shock. And the consumer's response so far has not been to cut spending. And, you know, in fact, that that survey from this morning that your previous guest alluded to, um, says, you know, the consumers, you know, they're not saying, hey, it costs me more to buy gas food, therefore I'll have to spend less on other items. They're just saying we're going to spend more. Uh, we're going to cover these increased costs, but we're not necessarily going to cut spending. Um, and that means that, you know, even if it starts out as a series of supply shocks, 
demand is sort of sustaining those inflationary forces. Um, and, and again, that I think that has to be the number one concern at the Fed, because at this point, it, it's really their credibility on the line. Um, and look, I think also we have to keep in mind that the Fed started this year with a baseline forecast of 4%. Uh, so even if you sort of assume a worst case scenario on oil and then you add these supply shocks, you know, chances are that we're still going to end up with an economy that's growing above trend. Um, and again, inflation that's just just way, way above where the Fed uh, really wants to see it. Uh, and so I, I think sure. to me, you know, the, the outcome is pretty clear. So to kind of re- re- sort of capture your points, you say the oil shock, not significant enough to put a meaningful dent in U.S. growth, some dent, but not a meaningful one. Risks to inflation are much greater. The actual inflated data points uh, show broadening price pressure. So let's just leave it with your inflation forecast at this point. You know, we've seen scary headlines about how the CPI could be 9% in the next reading, but what's the more significant takeaway uh, that people should have in mind when it comes to what the dynamics are for inflation right now? Yeah, look, whether we peak at eight, you know, eight and a quarter percent, I don't think that's that's really sort of too relevant. I think the bigger question is, are we going to see second order effects on inflation? And our base case before the war was that inflation would slow, uh, but to three percent by the end of the year. We thought that the labor market would put a floor under core inflation around three percent. And if we do get those second order effects and, and these energy and food price increases start to feed through, you could potentially end up higher. And that means that, you know, even if part of this inflation story self-corrects, there's going to be a significant chunk that doesn't. And that will ultimately have to be squeezed out by the Fed. All right. Annetta, we'll leave it there. Thanks again for your time. It'll be a big week. We appreciate it. Annetta Markowska from Jeffries. Quick programming note, we have a very special edition of the Exchange and Power Lunch. We're combining it all on Wednesday. Tyler will be outside the Federal Reserve starting at 1 p.m. with full coverage. I'll be here. It will be very fun and exciting and lively, we anticipate. Coming up, crude's massive reversal continuing today with oil breaking below $100 a barrel. Is that just an aberration or was the spike to 130 the aberration? That's next. Plus, Chinese tech stocks are tumbling again today as losses in the K-Web ETF approach 80% from their last February highs. A live report from China on their COVID outbreak that just closed Apple's major supplier in Shenzhen. And as we head to break, let's get a quick check on the markets. Dow hanging on to gains up 59 points right now. That's it. The S&P now down 25. Look at the Nasdaq down 245 points, almost 2%. We're back in a moment. With the Wells Fargo Active Cash Credit Card, you can earn unlimited 2% cash rewards on purchases you want and purchases you need. That means you earn 2% cash rewards on what you want, like season tickets to watch your favorite team, and 2% cash rewards on what you need, like paying for parking. That's the beauty of the Active Cash Credit Card. It's ready when you are with unlimited 2% cash rewards. The Wells Fargo Active Cash Credit Card. That's real life ready. Terms apply. Learn more at wellsfargo.com/activecash. What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration, our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM, a leading global asset manager.
Welcome back to The Exchange. After a historic surge that sent crude past the $130 a barrel mark last Tuesday, the commodity has fallen more than 16% since and crossed below $100 a barrel, barrel earlier. So should you bail on energy stocks? Joining me now is John Kilduff, again, Capital's co-founder and a CNBC contributor. Now, I remember, John, you were bearish when we spoke last week. Um, where do you stand now after this latest adjustment? Well, I think, you know, the $100 mark is going to be a tough nut to crack to the downside, Kelly, but I think it ultimately will give way, particularly if there's any positive news or progress in the Ukraine-Russia talks. I mean, that's a big factor here. And one of the reasons that I've been somewhat you know, negative on this price going much higher is the fact that the bulk of the Russian crude oil output is remaining on the market. As a matter of fact, India stepped up today to buy some cargoes of Russian Ural crude. Uh, that they're getting at a steep discount. So it's going to make a lot of sense for them to step in and fill uh, the buying void here that has emerged uh, from the U.S. and the U.K. in particular. Uh, So to the extent we can keep most of that oil on the market, other sources then that would have gone to India can go to other places. And so we're, we have relative calm at the moment. Yeah. And also, too, the other big news for the, other big news for the crude oil market, uh, just quickly, uh, is the lockdown in China. 18 million people uh, forced to stay at home, not drive, not consume. Uh, big issue. Let me circle back to that in a second. But there's kind of both good news and bad news in what you're saying about the oil price, which is maybe 130 isn't sustainable right now. We'll see later this year. But you don't really see us going below 100 either, which let's just call that $4 uh, a gallon for gasoline. So pretty similar to what Americans have already been paying. It's still, you know, it still takes a toll. What does that mean for the energy stocks? Well, A, it most certainly takes a toll. I, I have a real problem with the, uh, the economists trying to compare the, the 1970 situation uh, with this one saying it's, it's not applicable. 70% of our economy is consumer. of our economy is getting hammered right now at the gas pump. So I'll just leave that at that for the other folks to sort of hash out. But um, what it means for the energy companies, Kelly, is that they're going to continue to have substantial earnings, earnings power. Uh, ExxonMobil could possibly return to being the most profitable company in the world once again, a position that it held, you know, a number of years ago uh, and since slipped appreciably. So there is, uh, you know, great news in the oil patch right now. And it's also going to encourage them all to drill more. Uh, so the CEO of Hess last week at Sierra Week highlight this. You know, they can't, they can't ignore these rates of return. Now, they don't want to dig their own grave again, like what happened in, uh, uh, in the p- height of the pandemic. Uh, but they're certainly going to put uh, shovels in the ground and, and drill more here uh, in order to capture this amazing price. Yeah. So this, they're in a, let's call it a sweet spot in terms of being incentivized to produce more, making more money per barrel. But I can't imagine that Exxon wants the headlines right now of being the most profitable company in the world when you have Democrats already proposing a windfall profits tax. Uh, yes, then that's how they, we go in these cycles. I can tell you next they'll be coming for the speculators, too, uh, in terms of what's you know, driving the oil price. Uh, you know, <laughs> I think we're seeing the value of our U.S. energy, oil and production and natural gas production right now. And the last thing you want to do is disincentivize these uh, these companies from drilling more and, uh, you know, being profitable uh, from it. Uh, You know, this is not a windfall. And should we have helped them out when oil prices traded to negative 40 during the height of the pandemic? I mean, it's 
probably one of the most unfair um, proposals I've heard in a long time. Uh, even though, you know, this is certainly something that's uh, aggravating to the consumer. The fact of the matter is, you know, there is a war, there is a, a Russian oil being embargoed by the U.S. and, and United Kingdom. It could, it could go further than that. And if it does, then, you know, we're going to be talking about a scarcity. And in this harsh economic reality, uh, we, the price gets to a point where rationing uh, it becomes uh, required because of the lack of affordability. Yeah. And that's partly what keeps the price from soaring ever higher. Quick parting thought, since you did put your finger on it, you know, the issues with China that are a big reason why we're seeing crude sinking today. Do you think the market is overreacting to the Shenzhen lockdown and the others? How, how big is this exposure potentially? It's rather large because, you know, China takes this, this brute force approach to controlling COVID. Uh, and China's economy was already teetering, uh, in, in my view, in terms of its economic uh, power and, and manufacturing, Kelly. So if we lose China to any degree with respect to demand for, for petroleum because of its energy intensity, uh, the crude oil market's going to have a big problem on its hands, potentially. All right, John, we'll leave it there. Thanks so much. We appreciate it today. Thank you. John Kilduff as oil again broke below 100 earlier, a little above that level right now. Still ahead, we'll talk about how sanctions on Russia are impacting policy priorities here at home, including on the oil and gas industries. We'll hear directly from the Deputy Treasury Secretary. And speaking of sanctions, we're getting new details on the specific investments targeted by the DOJ's Klepto Capture Task Force. It includes a little-known firm near Sleepy Hollow, New York that could be getting a big wake-up call from Congress. As we head to break, here's a look at the Dow heat map with the index clinging on to gains. We actually have a pretty even split between advancers and decliners. It's just bigger declines and the decliners. American Express leading the way, Nike the biggest laggard. We're back in a moment. With the Wells Fargo Active Cash credit card, you can earn unlimited 2% cash rewards on purchases you want and purchases you need. That means you earn on what you want, like trying out that new workout class, and 2% cash rewards on what you need, like a foam roller for your sore muscles. That's the beauty of the Active Cash credit card. It's ready when you are, with unlimited 2% cash rewards. The Wells Fargo Active Cash credit card. That's real life ready. Terms apply. Learn more at wellsfargo.com slash active cash. Support for this program is provided by Chevron. Demand for energy is projected to continue rising in the future. To help keep up, Chevron is increasing their U.S. oil and gas production, and they're innovating to help do it responsibly across their operations, including their Gulf of Mexico facilities, which are some of the world's lowest carbon intensity operations, helping supply energy that's affordable, reliable, and ever cleaner. That's energy in progress. Learn more at chevron.com slash meeting demand. Welcome back to The Exchange. Dow has given up tremendous gains. It was up 451 points this morning, only up 85 right now. The S&P is down 21. 4182, by the way, we're approaching its low levels of the year, which are, if I recall, were around 4122. And the Nasdaq, by far the worst performer today. A lot of pressure there from higher interest rates and Chinese tech underperforming again. Uh, Nasdaq's down 239 or almost 2%. In terms of sectors, no surprise, financials, healthcare leading the way today. Financials helped by that higher move in interest rates. To, uh, energy is the biggest laggard with that reversal in oil prices we were just talking about. And here are some of the other movers this hour. Yum China falling after the company reported a dramatic decline in sales 
same-store sales. They're saying the COVID situation in China has, quote, rapidly deteriorated. Shares are down 2% here. They've already been under pressure, as we've covered uh, in the past week. Macau casinos also tumbling on those COVID headlines. Las Vegas Sands, Melco, win down between 5 and in LVS case, more than 11%. It's back to 32. And those rising cases in China are also driving up the vaccine stocks today. So some relief for Moderna, BioNTech, Novavax, Pfizer, J&J, Moderna's up 10% to 152. But Moderna and BioNTech are still down 40% since Jan 1. Elsewhere, Netflix trading at its lowest level since before the pandemic. So it's gone all the way full circle back. Here's a look at the two-year chart. So Netflix, 332 in the session today. Uh, you can see it's down 44% this year on pace for its fifth straight monthly loss and its worst losing streak since the year it went public back in 2002. Let's get to Rahel Solomon now for a CNBC News update. Rahel. Hi, Kelly, and here's what's happening at this hour. In downtown Kyiv, Ukrainian officials say that a Russian airstrike has killed at least one person and injured six. Officials say that the attack landed near a Ukrainian checkpoint, but also did extensive damage to apartment buildings and homes. In Kharkiv, meantime, Ukraine's second largest city, the mayor says that Russian forces are firing at the city nonstop. Russia's deadly attack of a large Ukrainian base over the weekend was carried out with cruise missiles launched from Russian airspace. That's according to a senior U.S. defense official. The official says that the attack will not affect the military resupply effort from the West for Ukraine. And on the news tonight, Poland's two biggest cities say that they are running out of room for new Ukrainian refugees. A look at the situation on the ground tonight at 7 Eastern. And the CDC now lowering its COVID warning level for cruise ships. The CDC now saying that the risk is moderate. And that means that the agency is no longer recommending that people avoid cruises if they have an increased risk of severe illness from COVID. Kelly still, of course, suggesting people wear a mask when they're indoors. But good news for the cruise lines for sure. Yeah, seeing a big spike in demand. Rahel, thank you so very much. We appreciate it. Coming up, the Chinese tech stocks are getting crushed again today. Alibaba, Baidu, Aichi, they're down like 50% in a week. We know there's an SEC crackdown, but it's not the only reason investors are staying away. We'll have that next. And check out this index. It's gained more than 16% so far this year. And with commodities on the rise, it could still have more room to run. A look at some emerging opportunities coming up. Welcome back. The spread of COVID in China has forced the closure of Foxconn's headquarters in Shenzhen as the highly contagious Omicron variant is now testing China's zero COVID strategy. Chinese and Hong Kong stocks down sharply as a result. It also comes as China is walking a tightrope in its dealings with Russia. U.S. and Chinese officials meeting in Rome today to discuss competition as well as the ongoing war in Ukraine. Eunice Yun is live in Beijing for us with all the latest. Eunice? Thanks so much, Kelly. Well, the talks are meant to remind China of the consequences of its apparent alignment with Russia. Uh, so far, the game plan for China seems to have been to uh, support Russia and also to uh, maintain an anti-West alliance, while at the same time appearing neutral enough to keep the economically vital relationships that it has with the U.S. and with Europe. However, increasingly, uh, China has been um, more pro-Russia in its statements, um, it's, the U, it's been consistently blaming the U.S. for the Ukraine crisis. Also, President Xi Jinping recently heavily criticized the Western sanctions as well as the expansion of NATO. And then just today, the foreign ministry 
um, denied the reports uh, that U.S. officials uh, had suggested that China was asked by Russia to assist with military gear, saying that this is false information. All the while, state media has also been amplifying uh, Russia's theories that uh, U.S. biolabs, the U.S. has been operating biolabs in Ukraine. Now, uh, before his visit, uh, the NSA advisor, Jake Sullivan, said that he was going to be uh, speaking with China's top diplomat um, about those, uh, those potential consequences um, if there is, a, a, what he had said, a large-scale um, sanctions evasion. Um, this, of course, then puts China in a very uncomfortable position where it definitely doesn't like to be, Kelly, uh, where it has to make some tough choices when it comes to foreign policy or, or perhaps risk a harder break with the U.S. and its allies. And at the same time, now facing the worst COVID outbreak they've had in China in two years, right? Yeah, that's right. So far, 51 million people here are in lockdown or in partial lockdown, including in the tech hub of Shenzhen. Uh, 17 and a half million people there. The entire population is being tested for a third time in uh, testing centers that are makeshift, like the one behind me. Uh, the um, in entire uh, city has been told that the um, businesses there that are non-essential need to be suspended for at least a week. A travel has been cut. A public transport has been cut. And uh, uh, Foxconn, as well as uh, Unimicron, which are both suppliers of Apple, have uh, said that they have been able to uh, put in place some backup plans. Uh, Foxconn said in a statement that due to our diversified production sites in China, we have adjusted the production line to minimize the potential impact. Uh, Unimicron also supplies for Intel. Um, other Chinese cities have been uh, tightening COVID curbs, including Shanghai. Shanghai is uh, now rumored to uh, be uh, considering uh, diverting international flights away from the city uh, this week. And then Beijing also canceled large-scale um, events and is urging its residents not to travel. Kelly? A huge factor for global growth and inflation, uh, the way that COVID goes there. Eunice, thanks so much. We really appreciate it. Eunice Yoon overnight for us. China playing, trying to play all sides of the Ukraine conflict, but is nevertheless facing a revolt led by global investors and shareholders against many of its major companies. How might that pressure the Chinese to help resolve the war on Ukraine? My next guest has some thoughts. Joining me now is Marco Papich. He's the chief strategist with Clock Tower Group. And Marco, you come at this from an interesting angle, pointing out it's not like the White House has cracked down on China at all here, uh, as its posture remains a little bit of an open question going forward. But investors certainly have. Why is that? Well, you know, I think uh, in my conversations with many capital allocators, uh, they, don't, they don't have time to really figure out who's on whose side. This looks very much like a reestablishment of a binary world order. Now, I don't think one is being reestablished, but for the time being, it looks like the West has, uh, you know, rebuilt the transatlantic relationship and China's on Russia's side. And that's just the way that the perception in the West is. And given the private sector voluntary sanctions against Russia, which really is the most fascinating outcome of this war, mm -hmm. just how quickly and, and, and how aligned all corporates have been on basically getting out of Russia. A lot of capital allocators are just doing the same uh, with China. And that's why Beijing really needs to think about how it proceeds. 
could uh, it, with diplomacy over the next couple of days. Absolutely. And could it actually change the outcome here, having seen a glimpse of what that could look like if China is perceived as aligning even more closely with Russia at this point? Could they now try to tack in a different direction, you know, saying they want to be more of an arbiter of a solution here, maybe not supplying uh, with weapons as they've denied they would? Uh, in other words, could that change the outcome uh, in their decision making here? You know, uh, I think this could be a pretty profound shift in U.S.-China relations. There could actually be a detente that comes out of this. Um, one thing is for, for sure, this sort of, uh, you know, like Beijing is basically performing cartwheels, you know, cartwheels on a beach. That's what it's trying to do. It's trying to like do this elaborate dance where it tries to signal to everyone that it wasn't on the Russia side, but it's also, you know, not on America's side. And, and it just seems that that's not enough. In the world of Twitter, in the world of social media, you're on one side or another really quickly. Um, and I don't think China wants to be canceled, particularly at a time, as your colleague pointed out, when it's domestic economy, domestic demand, households, private sector is basically over leveraged. Policy is pushing on a string. And the only thing that's worked in China has been uh, exports. So, Marco, would you, given that some of these stocks now are down 80 percent from their highs, would you look at any of them as potential opportunities for American investors who want to go that route? Would you caution them to stay away for the time being? Um, and where, you know, what are the other opportunities, you know, for people's portfolios that you see cropping up right now? Well, definitely commodities have been the best buy um, forever. I think you and I talked about this several like, yeah. weeks ago. Wheat and gold have just done really well. You, Kelly, pointed out palladium. Now, a lot of the geopolitical risk premium in some of these commodity markets is coming off. I prefer gold and wheat relative to oil, actually, because there are substantive fundamental reasons you want to be in those. As for buying Chinese ADRs, there needs to be clarity in Chinese foreign policy. Uh, they can't continue with the elaborate cartwheel dance that they're doing. They need to kind of choose sides and they need to be constructive or else the private sector, not the White House, not the U.S. government, the private sector is going to put them in that cancellation uh, you know, policy. There's going to be hashtag cancel Beijing, just like there is one cancel China, uh, cancel Russia. And I don't think they want to be in that rubric. Fascinating. Marco, great to have you today. Thanks so much for your thoughts. Marco Papage with Kelly. Clock Tower. Be sure to tune in top of the hour for an exclusive interview with former Google chairman and CEO Eric Schmidt. He's going to talk about the importance of building up 5G here to compete with China. Again, that's on Power Lunch at 2 p.m. Eastern. Coming up, the Justice Department targeting fintech in its hunt for Russian oligarchs. We'll get the latest from Klepto Capture Task Force. But first, we'll hear from the man in charge of sanctions, the Deputy Treasury Secretary, on their impact and what steps could be next. We're back in a moment on The Exchange. Welcome back. In just the past half hour, EU members approved a fourth round of sanctions against Russian oligarchs and their entities. Those moves follow a similar round of sanctions from the U.S., including oil import bans and kicking banks out of SWIFT. Kayla Tausche sat down with the man leading those sanctions for the Biden administration and joins us with the latest from the White House. Kayla? Kelly, American consumers are continuing to shoulder high costs from those sanctions on Russia with energy uncertainty driving up prices at the pump. And today I sat down exclusively with the Deputy Treasury Secretary Wally Adiemo to discuss the next wave of sanctions and the domestic policies that could offset them, like a possible suspension of the federal gas tax currently under discussion. At what point do you think the administration would say this has gotten bad enough that we need to pull that lever? 
And I want to make clear to you that we're considering all options. And we know the best option to reduce gas prices is to increase the supply. Uh, the challenge with some of the proposals I've seen that are around um, tax cuts is that most of that money will go into the pocket of producers. Our goal actually is to make sure that we increase the supply. That's why the presence has been focused on the strategic petroleum reserve, releasing more oil into the market to reduce the cost. That's why we've called on domestic producers and international producers to put more supply into the market. Today in America, there are 9,000 permits available for domestic producers. In the first year of the Biden administration, more oil and gas was produced than in the first year of the but Trump administration. But there's been a general chilling effect by the rhetoric of the administration and the communications with the industry. Granted, some of that is changing now, uh, but but how can you say to these companies you need to start drilling more when the posture of the administration for the last 12 months has been we are going to be moving away from fossil fuels? I don't think those things are inconsistent. 9,000 leases being available to oil and gas producers in this country is a significant number. Last year, in the first year of the Biden administration, more oil and gas was pumped than in the first year of the Trump administration because we've created an environment. But what the president has said is that while we want additional supply today, we ultimately do want to move towards a clean energy future. As for other domestic priorities, Adeyemo tells me House Democrats are on board to extend the child tax credit and that President Biden will work on garnering support from the Senate for that and for other agenda items like pausing student loan payments even beyond the May 1st deadline currently. Kelly. All right, Kayla, while we have you, also some big news on the Fed as uh, West Virginia Senator Joe Manchin indicates he wouldn't support Sarah Bloom Raskin. Does that effectively mean the end of the road for her at the Fed? Not quite yet, Kelly. The White House is standing behind the Raskin nomination and says at this hour that they are working on shoring up bipartisan support, i.e. getting at least one Republican on board with her nomination to be able to move it forward. Raskin, remember, has been confirmed twice before in 2010 to the Fed Board of Governors in 2014 as Deputy Treasury of the Secretary herself. But both of those, Kelly, were vo voice votes, meaning that no individual lawmaker had to put their name on the record as to how they were voting for Raskin. So it's hard to go through the list and say, here where we here's where we think we have support and where we know we don't, because there's no there's no historical record there, unlike for other nominees. Is there a backup to that backup plan? Uh, well, certainly, if you ask the progressive camp, uh, there is not. This is really the nominee that they want. Uh, and you can see the White House is not giving up hope just yet. Absolutely. Kayla, thank you. We appreciate it. Kayla Tausche from the White House. Up next, the iShares Brazil ETF is on pace for its best performance in six years. We'll look at why Russia's pain is Brazil's gain. And take a look at the Nasdaq as it hits fresh session lows. It's down more than 2% right now, about 2.1%, a 269-point decline. We're back in a moment. Welcome back. The Brazil ETF, the EWZ, lower fractionally today, but up nearly 14 percent in the past two months. And it's no accident. Brazil is benefiting from several key factors at the moment. Seema Modi is here with that story. Seema? Kelly, not one single day of outflows. That's significant when you look at the sizable losses China and other emerging markets are sitting on for the year. Now, as investors scale back their exposure to Russia, Brazil has seen inflows of about 
$15 billion in 22, uh, on track for its best start to the year since 2016. J.B. Morgan says Brazil is poised for a breakout, having the closest composition to Russia, with oil being a really big driver, about 20% of its economy. That's also fueled shares of Petrobras, as you can see here. That's Brazil's state-run energy giant. Now, Brazil's oil is comparable to Russia's crude. Estimates show Brazil produces about 3.8 million barrels per day, and it's been increasing output in recent weeks. For context, Russia exports roughly 5 million. But similar to here, economists are warning that higher oil prices and agriculture prices will make inflation a bigger issue. Uh, Brazil currently has one of the highest interest rates in the world, over 10 percent. That's coming ahead of a presidential election this fall, where latest polling shows, Kelly, that President Bolsonaro is trailing the frontrunner da Silva, who is seen as more business friendly, but clearly a key issue for, for them. Are there any other Latin American countries, Sima, that are similarly benefiting, or is this a unique Brazil story? So if you look across the world right now, Latin America, Kelly, is the only region we are seeing markets that are trading in positive territory for the year, and that is because of this commodity boom that we've seen. Colombia, for example, is one of the biggest exporters of oil. That market has done very well. Argentina, where it generates a lot of its revenue from agriculture. Uh, we're talking soybeans, wheat, meat. Uh, it also recently secured a $45 billion debt deal with the IMF. So that market has done well. But with all these markets, they're also a big uh, supplier to China. And as we grow con increasingly concerned, economists grow increasingly concerned around the trajectory of that economy, that, of course, could present a risk for broader Latin America and South America. No, but it's a great reminder of some suppliers that we honestly just don't talk enough about. Seema, thank you. Thanks. We appreciate it, Seema Modi. Now, some other emerging markets haven't been so lucky this year. The EEM ETF is down about 15% since Jan 1. My next guest says the consensus is too gloomy. Joining me now is Rushir Sharma. He is the chairman of Rockefeller International and founder of Breakout Capital. It's great to see you, Rushir. Why do you think too gloomy? Well, because if you look at the relationship that emerging markets have had with commodity prices, it's been a very tight fit. And this goes back 30, 40 years, really since this asset class was conceived. And given how much commodity prices are up, you would expect emerging markets to be up a lot more. So I think that relationship has broken down. The last time the relationship broke down that way was back in 2001, 2002. And then we know what happened after that. There was a big boom which took place in emerging markets. So most emerging markets tend to be commodity exporters. And in an environment where we're seeing higher for longer commodity prices, I expect emerging markets to do much better in the years ahead. What about the dollar? Does the dollar have to go kind of back to a weakening trajectory in order to support that? Yes, usually that's the case. Now, all these things are interlinked. Higher commodity prices, weaker dollar, and therefore higher emerging markets, they all tend to be um, parts of the same story. And I think that we're seeing that. I know that um, you highlighted how much the emerging market ETF is down. But remember, all markets are down by a similar proportion this year. And that also is unusual because typically emerging markets have a higher beta than the rest of the world, the U.S. or other um, parts of Europe. But this time, they've all fallen exactly in line, which already tells me that that is a divergence that's opening up, that a lot of people have already exited emerging markets. Uh, the consensus is too pessimistic. And so therefore, a lot of selling that's taking place. I mean, if you look at the outflows from, uh, from emerging markets, they've been very strong. Despite those massive outflows, the performance of emerging markets hasn't been that bad in an environment such as this. Right. Like you're saying, they should be down 30 percent if the S&P is down 15 or whatever. So exactly. should people 
do, you know, get exposure through something as broad as the EEM? Or are there specific emerging markets that you think especially are a good opportunity right now? Yeah, I think buying the EEM is a bad idea just because it's got such large exposure to countries like China and other commodity importers. And the Latin American ETF, I think, is a better idea if you really want to play the commodity boom. But otherwise, you know, with people who are much more selective about this, I think countries in uh, the Middle East could do very well. The domestic demand there could do extremely well. I think that similarly, some of the beaten down markets of Eastern Europe uh, may do much better. But generally, I think that we have to be cautious about EEM because of the large exposure that has to countries such as China. And one of the most underreported stories uh, this year really is what's happening in China. Even through this crisis, over the past two or three weeks, some of the most significant weakness we have seen is in China. The equity market and the property market there is still melting down. The high yield spreads in China are still blowing out. So this yes. whole notion, that, you know, that this geopolitical notion that China is uh, you know, going to be a beneficiary of what's going on out here. Well, guess what? If you look at the market indicators, the domestic indicators, China's economy is in serious trouble or in a lot of trouble and something that I think is off the radar. Could you just follow up on that, Rushir, to sort of what should investors do then now they've already taken all of these losses? Yeah, so I think that as far as China is concerned, I'm, uh, I would still be underweight China significantly and, and keep clear of that market. But I think many of these other commodity exporting countries in general, I think are going to do quite well. I think some of the domestic demand plays, whether it's in some of these Middle Eastern economies from Saudi Arabia, UAE, or places in Latin America that Seema highlighted at the top of the yeah. show just now, from Brazil to Colombia, I think all these countries are poised to do quite well. And I think that the um, these equity markets could well return double digits every year for the next five, 10 years. So that's the place to be. Fascinating. Rashir, great to have you today. Thank you so much. Rushir Sharma with Rockefeller Capital, or International, I should say. Up next, the DOJ is hunting down Russian oligarchs' assets by any means possible. Could have a big impact on the U.S. stock market. We'll connect those dots next. Welcome back. The U.S., along with the U.K. and the E.U., issuing broad sanctions against Russian oligarchs. Robert Frank joins us now with a look at the entities the Department of Justice is focused on. Robert? Well, Kelly, Justice uh, warning crypto exchanges and the payment platforms that they could become targets in this ever-expanding oligarch crackdown. The new sanctions task force saying banks and crypto exchanges that fail to maintain adequate money laundering policies will be in the crosshairs of this investigation. European Union going even further, banning the oligarchs and certain companies from trading crypto altogether. And that's because trading between the ruble and crypto assets more than doubled right after the invasion of Ukraine. Meanwhile, UK and US also going after the financial investments of the oligarchs here in the US. UK authorities freezing the US hedge fund investments made by Roman Abramovich. He, of course, is the billionaire that was sanctioned in the UK and Canada. Officials say he invested billions of dollars through an unregistered investment firm in New York called Concord Management. Now, his hedge funds include some big names, Mill Street Capital, Empyrean, Millennium, and Sculptor Capital. Abramovich had been trying to sell these investments in recent weeks. Sources telling me he also has large holdings of U.S. stocks. Unclear which institutions, though, he was using to trade those. And the oligarchs are literally on the run right now. Within the past hour, 
A private jet used by Abramovich just left Israel, headed to Turkey. So, Kelly, they can run, but they can't hide. No, and uh, again, another headwind for the assets that they have ownership of. Robert, thank you very much, Robert Frank. As the Dow turns negative, it's down by 80 points, joining the S&P and NASDAQ in negative territory this afternoon. That does it here on The Exchange. You've been listening to The Exchange. Make sure you're subscribed to get each episode every day, same time, same place. With the Wells Fargo Active Cash Credit Card, you can earn unlimited 2% cash rewards on purchases you want and purchases you need. That means you earn 2% cash rewards on what you want, like season tickets to watch your favorite team, and 2% cash rewards on what you need, like paying for parking. That's the beauty of the Active Cash Credit Card. It's ready when you are with unlimited 2% cash rewards. The Wells Fargo Active Cash Credit Card. That's real life ready. Terms apply. Learn more at wellsfargo.com slash active cash.